Hello, this is Dr. Dan Guerra again from Authentic Biochemistry. This is our new podcast coming here, presenting from the Inland American Northwest. As your host, I am a PhD biochemist. I've been working as a research scientist and university professor for over three decades now, actually close to, uh, well, about, about 35 years, I guess. And what I decided to do with uh, a portion of what um, my career is leaning towards these days is to discuss with the general public uh, the nature and the scope of what is being published in scientific literature, that is specifically in the literature that encompasses biomedicine, but can also include simply experimental biosciences. My expertise, of course, is biochemistry. That's why I call my uh, podcast, Authentic Biochemistry. And what I'm going to do is not lecture you uh, about biochemical principles, which there's nothing wrong with that either. And I do that actually as another format. But what I'm trying to do here is discuss with you what is currently published in the scientific journals. And the topics can vary. Of course, feedback and uh, input from my listeners will be a major focus of what we will discuss. I'm going to try to limit these podcast recordings to under an hour. My very first pilot was only about 14 minutes. This one might be a little bit longer. We'll just see how it goes. So I'm getting new. I'm new at this. So I'm getting to understand how it functions. Uh, hopefully the audio quality is reasonable. I'm going to work on that. I'm going to also work on getting guests and eventually having input from people phoning in, but that will probably be down the road quite a bit. But right now, I'm just telling you that your host here is Dr. Daniel J. Guerra. I am a scientist, I'm a a PhD biochemist, and I'm here to talk to you about uh, today some of the molecular biochemical underpinnings of Alzheimer's disease. So last time, what I was doing was discussing with you the current understanding of how bioenergetics plays a role in the prodromal and early stages of onset for age-associated Alzheimer's disease, that neuropsychiatric dementia that it can occur uh, to about 50% of the population um, and only 50% of the population, and that the occurrence of that <laughs> is more or less increases as you get over the age of 65. So it's definitely age-related. So all the things associated with senescence, that is cellular aging, are probably related to this disease. But what the literature is telling us, besides the obvious discussions on A-beta proteins and tau uh, uh, fibrillary tangles, is that there's a lot of um, avenue to understand what is underlying those proteinopathies. That is, we want to understand what's going on with the cells, particularly in the central nervous system, that start or initiate the process that ultimately leads to Alzheimer's disease. I'm going to call AD from now on. So that's what we're getting into today. So remember, this is authentic biochemistry. So I'm not going to babysit with anyone. I'm not going to sit here and start talking to you about very basic things. I'm going to jump right into it. I'm going to talk to you as if uh, you were sitting in a classroom with me or across a dining room table. 
and you ask me as a scholar, as a biochemist, well, what's going on these days of research in Alzheimer's disease? And then I would start discussing what I'm, the kind of thing I'm going to mention to you today. So let's get started. So remember that Alzheimer's disease is synoptically a neuropsychiatric age-associated disease or age-related disease. And it has, unfortunately, idiopathic uh, origins. That means we don't really know what the very initial phases of cause are for Alzheimer's disease. We only know that once you have certain biochemical and cellular biological markers, that those markers are indicative of leading to a prodromal or kind of like preconception stage that ultimately will lead to full-blown Alzheimer's disease as a person ages, as the, as the patient ages. So unfortunately, it's idiopathic still. So what I want to do is mention briefly that last time we introduced the fact that bioenergetics is now coming onto the stage as being forefront and being related to, correlated with, early phases of Alzheimer's disease. Now, remember what I said bioenergetics was. It basically, if you take apart the term, it's the biological discussion of how energy is utilized to drive a system, energetics, right? So we, thermodynamics is, a, is, a, is sort of like the parent um, discipline that bioenergetics and indeed energetics fall, falls under. So basically what we're talking about is heat transfer, we're talking about work, chemical work, and we're talking about concepts such as enthalpy and entropy, right, and Gibbs-free energy. These are things that are the hallmark parameters of energetics and indeed bioenergetics when we start talking about Gibbs-free energy. So if you don't know what those terms mean, it's okay. You can look them up. And uh, indeed, there might be a time on Authentic biochemistry, I will do a primer on just basic bioenergetics. I don't have any problem doing that, but I don't want to do that in the initial phases of this podcast because I want you to see how this is authentic biochemistry. I'm not here again to try to be just some pundit or some um, online professor teaching you something like, well, this is glycolysis or this is the cell cycle or... Uh, these are the parameters associated with cardiovascular. There's nothing wrong with that. And, and indeed, there are other formats that I indeed employ those characteristic discussions. But for my podcast, what I want to do is relate directly from you, translate, if you will, from you, to you directly from the published scientific literature, what's going on in biochemistry, cell biology, cell physiology, molecular genetics, epigenetics, so that you get an idea of the actual authentic science that the medical doctors read and then eventually algorithms are generated and therapies are generated and pharmaceutical companies get involved much further down the road to attack things or to, or to try to uh, launch a, uh, a war against some of the major diseases in, hum in uh, the human uh, system. And of course, we can talk about cardiovascular disease and cancer, but today we're talking about Alzheimer's or this neuropsychiatric degenerative disease. <clears throat> so we, when we talk about bioenergetics, we have to talk about what kind of fuel cells use. I told you last time, and I'm sure many of you know, that the major fuel 
is uh, the result of the hydrolysis of the gamma phosphoryl group of a purine ribonucleotide called ATP, adenosine triphosphate. So when you hydrolyze that last phosphate group, there's three of them because it's ATP, the T stands for tri, three. When you hydrolyze that, you gain energy, okay? A certain amount of energy is produced and that energy can be connected to processes. And those processes can be things like molecular motors. They can be, uh, they can cause things like cellular trafficking. They can cause things like the heart to beat. They can induce things like the liver to produce glycogen or to hydrolyze glycogen. ATP is all over the place as the conduit energy source to be able to drive biology subcellularly. Okay, so within the cell, in order for ATP to be synthesized, it has to be synthesized in the eukaryotic cell in a subcellular compartment called the mitochondrion. Now, for ATP to be made in the mitochondrion is a process called the electron transport chain and oxidative phosphorylation. We mentioned this again last time. But think about this. Once you make this compound, ATP, it's in the mitochondria. You have to get it out of the mitochondria. So that means you have to translocate it across a membrane. The mitochondria has two membranes, inner and outer. And in order to get that ATP out, it has to move through a channel, which is designed, which exists for the sole purpose of translocating this ribonucleotide, this purine ribonucleotide. And indeed, for ATP to leave, ADP must enter the mitochondrion. And that's a perfect system because once ADP, adenosine diphosphate, is in the mitochondria, it is now a substrate for phosphorylation, which I told you is happening in the mitochondria uh, via the process known as oxidative phosphorylation. The word oxidative means that oxygen is being consumed this is one of the purposes, major function of having aerobic organisms is to be able to reduce molecular oxygen, drive electrons into molecular oxygen, ultimately to make H2O, water. The process of driving those electrons to oxygen, which has unpaired electrons and therefore will receive them, along with the hydride to make water, is the pumping of protons, uh, that is hydrogen ions, across that inner mitochondrial membrane so that those protons can be funneled through an enzyme complex known as a proton pumping ATPase or an enzyme that actually generates because it's a molecular motor ATP from the substrates ADP and inorganic phosphate. So that's a really brief overview, but basically that adenine nucleotide translocase, which allows you to bring ADP in and ATP out of the mitochondria is absolutely fundamentally necessary to get any energy at all out of the system. You have to get it out of the mitochondria. Just no good there alone. So in order for the electron transport chain to function, I remember what that's doing. The electron transport chain takes reduced nucleotide known as NADH and to a lesser degree FADH2. Those are respectively nicotinamide adenine dinucleotide and flavin adenine dinucleotide, reduced forms, those compounds are made in the normal metabolism of carbohydrates and fatty acids and amino acids to generate energy and also to generate all the other biomolecules necessary for the cell. 
in specificity associated with the cell type, tissue type, and organ, etc. So when you oxidize a carbon source, such as carbohydrate, such as, say, glucose, or a, or a carbon source such as fatty acid, you generate a couple of things. One is you make acetyl-CoA, that's a major compound made, which enters into a pathway ultimately called the tricarboxylic acid or Krebs cycle, all happening again in the mitochondria. And once that acetyl-CoA enters into that cycle, it condenses with another compound called oxaloacetic acid. And the condensation of OA8 with acetyl-CoA makes citrate. And indeed, that pathway is also known as the citric acid cycle. I'm sure if you've been if you've been through any biology course, you've heard of the Krebs cycle, also known as citric acid cycle, also known as tricarboxylic acid cycle, or TCA. At any rate, the process of turning that citric acid cycle, running through the various steps, the various enzymatic reactions, leads to the complete oxidation of introduced carbon to carbon dioxide. So this is a decarboxylating respiratory pathway so that you ultimately oxidize all the carbon that you consume to the most oxidized form of carbon, which is carbon dioxide. It's the most oxidized form. And that gets released in the atmosphere as gas. CO2 is ultimately taken back up in things like biotin-containing enzymes. So you can re... Uh, so CO2 can dissolve in water, make bicarbonate, it can be taken back up into uh, reactions such as acetylchloric oxalase to make malonyl-CoA, ultimately to enter into fatty acid synthesis. That's one uh, potential thing. That's where biotin is useful, actually, making carboxybiotin. But also CO2 on a global level is taken up by plants in oxygenic photosynthesis. Where carbon dioxide now is taken up by plant stomates, ultimately uh, is solubilized to bicarbonate, and ultimately makes sugars in the process known as the reductive pentose phosphate slash Calvin cycle uh, or photosynthesis, or the dark reactions of photosynthesis, driven there by the photolytic destruction of water to make molecular oxygen and protons, just like the protons in the electron transport chain, we're talking about the mitochondria, driving electron transport, ultimately causing in photosynthesis for the reduction of the carbon dioxide, now back to reduced forms. And then the plant, of course, that's still sugars, triphosphates, then ultimately glucose and fructose, and ultimately the translocatable sugar in plants, sucrose. That's where sucrose comes from in your diet, from plants, right? To disaccharide. So that's a very brief overview of how CO2 is released by all organisms in the process of respiration, right? Because you release carbon dioxide, but at the same time, you drive electrons and protons to make ATP. And one of the sinks for those electrons, of course, is molecular oxygen in, in, in aerobic organisms. And that's part of oxidative phosphorylation. Phosphorylation is you're adding an inorganic phosphate, PO3 2 minus, to adenosine diphosphate. What's the product? ATP. Okay. So that's ETC, electron transport chain, which has to do with a series of proteins that are basically they function as a, as a nested set of descending oxidation reduction potentials of these proteins. And these proteins contain things like iron and copper, okay? 
And all of these proteins in the electron transport chain, these redox systems, are embedded in the inner mitochondrial membrane. And they're sequentially accommodated by biochemical coupling, okay, so that you titrate the electrochemical potential. That is, you move down the electrochemical potential, and with each subsequent reduction oxidation coupled, you're moving those electrons ultimately, along with the proton motive force, to generate protons through that ATPase to make ATP. And at the same time, reducing molecular oxygen to water. Okay? So that's the electron transport chain oxfos or ETC oxfos. Okay? So strong reducing agents, if you want to have more detail about this at the chemistry level, have a high electron transfer potential while strong oxidizing agents have a low electron transfer potential. And you have oxidizing and reducing agents occurring as a couple with a strong reducing agent coupled with a weak oxidizing agent and vice versa. And because the processes involve the transfer of electrons, because that's what oxidation reduction is, when you reduce, you add an electron, when you oxidize, you remove it. Because it involves transfer of electrons, the measurement of resulting charge separation can be quantified in a voltage meter. It can be measured between the couple and actually something called the standard hydrogen half cell. And those have values that have been experimentally determined such that each successive reduction of the preceding component of the electron transport chain is kind of like um, poised to receive incoming electrons, okay? So once that happens, those electrons are sourced ultimately, because never want you to understand that, where are they coming from? They're coming from, I told you, that reduced nicotinamide adenine dinucleotide, NADH, or to a lesser degree, flavonadenine dinucleotide reduced form, FADH2. Okay, so that's where they're coming from. Remember, that's made, the NADH and the FADH2 is made because of what? because you've oxidized carbohydrate and fatty acid to a lesser extent, amino acid. Oxidizing that means you reduce the couple and the reduction occurs with NAD or FAD and they become NADH and FADH2, which now are becoming reoxidized in the electron transport chain, you see, because of that redox potential couple. So now you understand ETC oxfos. Okay, see how much you already know. So it's the result of carbohydrates, uh, fatty acids, and another carboxylic acid oxidation. And the carboxylic acids come from amino acids once you deaminate or transaminate away the amino group. So that comprises just one of the genetic components of a three-part framework that we have to understand here. And I call that framework dia-event-ontological framework. Okay, dia from dialectic. Event from event, meaning happening as something over time, rather than discussing a substance like glucose. I want to look at the uh, movement of glucose to pyruvic acid or the, or the loss of glucose over time to pyruvic acid, such as in glycolysis, or the accumulation of pyruvate over time, where the numerator would be getting larger and larger over some time, like in seconds. So I call that an event ontology. Hence the last part of my term, dia event ontological. And the dia comes from dialectics. And dialectics has to do with a way of reasoning through uh, phenomena, 
such that you develop premises or uh, propositions and those prop you propose something based on what you have analytically already considered as fundamentally factual or truths. So those premises are then used in the, in the movement of the dialectic to make a premise or to make some kind of hypothesis. And then the second movement in some dialectics, such as those proposed by Hegel and uh, thoroughly discussed and largely rebuked and put on its head by someone like Soren Kierkegaard, you take something like a thesis or an essential um, uh, positive um, verified statement, okay? You propose a proposition, a premise. You follow that with an antithesis, thesis, antithesis, where you come up with a counter to that proposition. And then the third movement is a synthesis. So you have thesis, antithesis, synthesis. And the synthesis is supposed to take into account the positive proposition and the negative proposition. You see, that's thesis, antithesis, synthesis. So that's a dialectical movement. And that's better than generating mere opinions by observation. So good science does not generate opinions by observation. It carries out a dialectical movement. Hence, my, my uh, requirement to look at science from a dia-event ontological perspective rather than a substance opinion-based method, which unfortunately is a default in many scientific discussions, particularly when scientists like myself talk to the public, right? We try to say, well, these are the givens. And really all that is, is an opinion. You have to always be able to back up what you're saying with, with analyzing it with logical reasoning skills and carrying out a dialectic, doing it in an event format rather than a substance format and letting it be your ontological perspective, or that is what is the reality of what you're describing is a, is a more thorough uh, method that has within itself a behest, uh, a legendaire a, a of being more appropriately analyzed as not just factual, but maybe generating truths with a small t. All right. So that's why I call it a diaventological framework. It ultimately includes networks and layers of immuno and tissue-specific cellular interactions. All of that drives to proximal, pseudo-determined, and sometimes final teleological conclusions. That is, what's the purpose of this pathway? Teleological con conclusion. The third movement of this three-partite, or what I call a trigonal planar interaction, involves a dynamic, macro and micro environmental modification of gene expression, lipid and protein synthesis, molecular movement and transport, modification and assembly intra, inter, and non-membranously, coupling all that to a dedicated electrochemical circuit like the electron transport chain with gradients like the proton motive force that drive action potentials in healthy central nervous systems. And a corruption of that process of event is what basically is the pathophysiology of Alzheimer's disease. Okay, so look at it this way. You have an adaptive 
plastic and elastic mechanism for real-time modification of a genetic sequence via mutation, paramutation, recombination, and repair of DNA, coupled with the triplet codon bias that you find in specific organisms, tissues even, and a segregation of structural and functional domains, such as in the polypeptides and lipids, that provide a dynamic template for an assembly and rearrangement of genetic loci, that's your domains, right, structural functional domains, which is going to amplify the possibility for biochemical reactivity and biophysical motion, such as molecular motors like the ATPase, and the opportunity for metabolic zonation like liver versus heart versus adipose, such as tissue specificity, organelle sequestration, and indeed topodynamic membrane association and or secretion mechanisms with a complete repertoire of recognition mediating and concentration quantifying receptor-mediated boundary events, scores of unique and controlled nuance and signal transduction cascades, which all ultimately contribute to the genetic component of the dia-eventological paradigm, which I'm suggesting, for living systems that understands, so the system understands, so there's concepts embedded within it, and indeed embraces, so these are good metaphors, I think, understand and embraces a time signature, that's a denominator, delta T, change over time, change seconds are ticking away throughout the process of real-time events. Now, that's a huge mouthful, but that's what I mean by diabetology. And that's why I'm bringing it up now, because I'm going to go back and I'm going to reintroduce it and discuss it as we tear apart this discussion of Alzheimer's disease via the avenue of bioenergetics. Okay, so that's what I'm trying to do here today is just give you like the framework, give you the foundation, if it will, generate an architectonic so that we from there we can launch into what the scientific data says. And don't worry, I'm going to get into it here, you know, almost immediately. Let me just finish this last part of the introduction though, so that we can make another um podcast and the, the third podcast a third segment we're going to get more into the details of bioenergetics i've already introduced it i've now introduced i know rather quick and rather like sailing along at 600 miles an hour uh from a 30,000 foot height all the way down to sea level what i mean by my new paradigm dia event ontology but i have to introduce it somewhere and by golly i'm doing it now so let me finish this initial prolegomena by saying the cellular interactions and immune, so the immune system is going to be involved here, epigenetic modifications that itself, of course, requires definition, which you'll get, that tailor all the events we just discussed are also under a genetic, because I know you all know this, and I call it a law-giving, genetic law-giving architectonic but further include, okay, and thus transcendentally supersede those structural dynamics via immediate or mediated reading, writing, and erasure 
of all molecular agency. According to the potentiation of randomness, which is from the environment, and stochastic uncertainties, indicative biological systems in the world through time. Okay? So I know that that's heavy-duty biochemical philosophical discussion, but that's what we do here at Authentic Biochemistry. Now, I'm going to pack all this over time, probably over a thousand podcasts, if I'm still doing this a thousand um, uh, segments from now, and I will be because I'm still pretty young and I'm not going to give up on this. What I'm, my job here is to try to help people who are not scientists or even people who practice science, such as the, pra- the principles of science, such as physicians um, or people that need to understand science, such as uh, lawyers uh, or lay people that need to be able to trust what is told to them about scientific principles via their biomedical interactions with the health industry, all of us need to understand more the depth perception of what biochemistry is, because it's the foundation of everything that you ever encounter as long as you're alive. And that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to get to that perspective. And so when I go very deep cut into a discussion of the scientific literature, I'm going to take you all the way there because that's where you need to really get to get authenticity in your understanding. And that's what you're going to get from me. So let's go ahead and leave this, uh, which is just basically still a, a prolegomena. It's an initial discussion. We're going to stop recording here. We're going to publish this. Hopefully I'm not losing my audience before I even generated. But what I want to admit and promise to you that I'm going to now soon in my subsequent segment, get into published papers, use the knowledge base. I'm. Hello, this is Dr. Daniel J. Guerra. And this is our very first podcast called Authentic Biochemistry. What I'm going to be doing in this podcast is providing for my listeners an in-depth discussion of published scientific literature explained in such a way that a general audience will be able to understand and use the information, eventually maybe use it as knowledge itself, to interpret and to make um, decisions on what they want to understand about biological sciences. Now, my emphasis is biochemistry. That's why it's called authentic biochemistry, because that's what my degrees are in. And that's what my research efforts and my uh, 30 years as being a professor have been involved in, teaching biochemistry, specifically lipids, which, of course, you know is fatty acids and cholesterol, among many other types of lipids. So what I'm going to do is not make this a boring podcast where I'm just going to sit here and lecture to you which, by the way, isn't boring anyways, because nothing in biochemistry is ever boring. But, um, but rather than that, what I'm going to do is go into the scientific literature and read papers and then discuss those papers with you over this podcast. Eventually, what I'd like to do is have guests come in and we'll discuss papers, guests who are scientists guests that are medical doctors, maybe guests that are even attorneys, and certainly guests that are lay people in various walks of life. The goal 
is to bring actual published scientific research in the disciplines I'm talking about, medical biochemistry, physiological biochemistry, things such as pharmaceuticals and how they're used in disease, for example, interpretation of uh, the diagnoses of disease and the therapies thereof. That kind of scientific information is what I'm going to be dissecting, analyzing, and then distributing out on my podcast. So again, I've been doing this. I've been a professor for 30 years. And so now this is what I'm doing uh, post that university setting. I have a company called Verev Med, which I've posted uh, now probably close to 50 video lectures. And I'm going to give that all, all that information to you in the show notes eventually. So you've seen me on YouTube because I've given a lot of lectures. I'm now switching to podcasting so that I can do regular series on this, but I'm not going to abandon my video lectures or my regular client-based Med, the company that we use to help people with a problem they may have associated with either research or clinical, biochemical, biophysiological uh, uh, analyses of what they're interested in in any of the medical uh, fields. So again, there's a broad sweeping thing that we do, but that's what I've been teaching for all these decades. So topics include general biochemistry, endocrinology, immunology, uh, epigenetics, molecular genetics, all forms of physiology, including plant, animal, uh, and, and emphasis, of course, on human, and microbial physiology. I've taught all these things. And then, of course, an analysis of the science that's uh, out there currently. So stuff that's being published right now in 2019. I'm recording this uh, late February of 2019. Um, but also we'll go back and we'll look at what the archives show, because what's really important in science is to look at the evidence and then to verify that evidence based on the corpus of all the research that's been used to uh, prescribe uh, an explanation of what we know about some biological system. My emphasis is going to be human biochemistry. That's what's most interesting to us because we're human. But I will talk, as I said, about plant biochem and about microbial biochemistry because it's also relevant because, for example, plant biochemistry is relevant to human nutrition and microbial biochemistry is relevant to human disease. Uh, so you get the idea of where we're going with this. Uh, anyway, um, that's probably all I really want to say as an introduction. I have a doctorate degree and I have a master's degree, all in uh, biochemical sciences. And again, I've been doing this work, both scientific research at the bench, directing scientific research, both in industry and university setting and in government. And I've also been a, a regular university professor, as I said, for about 30 years. <clears throat> so um, what I'm going to do, though, is before I sign off, I'm going to give you a little sneak preview of the kinds of things I'm going to talk about so that we don't just have my uh, sort of banal introduction and then with no kind of content. So I'm just going to give you a little bit of discussion about something I very recently had been posting uh, on my Verev Medi YouTube channel. Uh, and so here is uh, 
that basic understanding. I'm going to cut it short because I'm only going to give you a brief introduction. Now, this particular uh, introduction is going to be about Alzheimer's disease. So that's one of the diseases we will be discussing. Uh, we'll discuss whatever our clients want to, but Alzheimer's disease is usually something a lot of people want to learn about, uh, particularly people that are of their age, but even younger people, and certainly the medical profession, the legal profession, the research profession likes to keep up to date on Alzheimer's disease research. And that's the kind of thing I do. <clears throat> so let's get started. Alzheimer's disease is synoptically a neuropsychiatric age-associated disease with an enigmatic idiopathic neurodegenerative etiology. Over the last three lectures that I've given on YouTube, and I'll give you those links uh, in a subsequent podcast, I've interrogated a series of axial pathways leading to a new series of experiments that arrived at bioenergetics as a core contributor to the pathology of Alzheimer's disease, which I'm going to start just calling AD by the initials. I discussed the basics energy metabolism in those pod, in those uh, Verivmed video lectures, by tracing the oxidation of carbohydrate, amino acid, and fatty acid carbon to deliver adequate reducing power in the form of NADH and FADH2. That reducing power drives net ATP synthesis, primarily in the mitochondria. And because we're talking about Alzheimer's disease, we're, we're linking in and focusing in on. Those are the mitochondria found in the cells that are associated with the central nervous system. The acronym for that is CNS. <clears throat> what I was able to uncover by this initial introduction was that ATP, that's the energy currency of the cell, adenosine triphosphate, a ribonucleotide, a purine structure. Uh, it's synthesized and then translocated out of the mitochondrion in specialized glial cells called astrocytes and in some instances oligodendrocytes, which eventually synthesize and secrete ketone bodies. Those would be acetoacetate and beta-hydroxybutyrate. For neuronal uptakes, you've got neurons in association with these glial cells in the CNS. Uh, so for neuronal uptake of those ketone bodies, the ones I just mentioned to you, <laughs> and ultimate utilization to drive the action potentials in neurons via the control of ionic and, of course, metabolomic neural transmission. So you understand that this is a biochemistry of uh, normal physiology how you get energy to drive action potentials so that normal central nervous system function occurs, neural transmission, neurotransmitters neurotran being secreted and sent across the synapse so that action potentials are fired in uh, downstream neurons so that you continue an action potential and you get neural transmission. That's what we're talking about. And I'm talking about the bioenergetics of that, where you get the energy to do what is the central nervous system with the energy to do that. It comes from ATP synthesis, and I just explained to you that the glial cells, not the neurons, are the ones that are providing the energy 
to drive some of the carbon source that's used. Now, that's when you use ketone bodies. Ketone bodies aren't the regular thing that are used in the brain. The most common fuel in the brain is plain old glucose, which, of course, crosses the blood-brain barrier. So that gets into whole body nutrition and glucose homeostasis. That is how much glucose is in circulation in the blood, vis-a-vis related to your diet, your exercise, uh, your uh, basal metabolic rate, your um, uh, overall BMI, your uh, age, and your sex. All of that relate to how much circulating glucose you would have in your body at any given time. So normally your brain uses glucose as a biofuel to drive neurotransmission. In Alzheimer's disease, it's recently been uncovered, and I will give you the citations of the papers I'm going to be reviewing, that there's a switch, a metabolic switch from glucose as the fuel for the energy to drive neurotransmission. And prodromally, at the beginning of Alzheimer's disease, it looks like there's a switch, a metabolic switch, where fatty acids are beta-oxidized, used to make ketone bodies in the process called ketogenesis, in associated adhering glial cells, which contribute that ketone body biofuel to the neuron, to the neurotransmission. And that is associated with prodromal early stages of Alzheimer's disease in humans. Okay, so that's just a brief introduction of the kind of things I'm going to talk about. Now, if you don't have any background in biochemistry, which I'm sure millions don't, uh, that's okay. Because what I want to do in my podcast is bring you up to the level where you have no problem um, using these terms, understanding how they function in science, at the level of a layperson or at the level of a physician or a research scientist. Um, because I'm going to try to make my um, conversation at a level where we're always um, uh, being authentic. We're using accurate terms. We're, we're staying away from hyperbole and hubris whenever we can. We're just reporting on science, but reporting on science from a scientist. And we're not talking about it just as like, here's an update on what's going on in the world of the science, scientific mind or something. What I want to do is make this very practical and very pragmatic for people that want to know the, the real evidence that's out there that's being published by us scientists and then how that's applied to current understanding of human health. And in the particular case we just started to discuss today, human health relative to a major neuropsychiatric degenerative disease known as Alzheimer's. So see, that's the kind of thing that we don't have to be talking about Alzheimer's all the time. Um, I Hardly ever. I mean, this is just one topic of many I cover. Because as I said, I'm a biochemist, so I, I do a wide ranging fields of many topics. But this is Alzheimer's disease, and it's a good thing, I think, to kick off this podcast because many, many millions of you are very interested in this disease. You probably want to know in detail, but in a way that will be understandable to you, what we research scientists are saying about it and what is the potential to come up with new, for example, pharmaceutical therapies or or nutritional therapies that may be uh, laser sent to uh, prevent or obviate 
uh, Alzheimer's disease in those populations that are susceptible to it. So I'm going to stop there. Um, this is about uh, not quite a 14, maybe a 14 and a half minute podcast introduction. I'm going to get this posted. And then the next time we discuss, I'll give you more information about me and about what I want to do on this podcast. And then we'll continue because I always like to do some content on what I've been uncovering of Alzheimer's disease, again, in the primary scientific literature. And I will give you citations, that is references, or to some of you footnotes of where this information is coming from. So you can look it up yourself and I will put those um, citations, references, footnotes, of course, in the um, uh, podcast notes when I start developing that as I go on. So hopefully this will be reaching a lot of you people and hopefully this is going to be something that will be interesting so that I can get a following and continue doing this. I'd love to be able to have a regular podcast where people phone in and ask questions. And also, as I said, I'd like to interview many of my colleagues, uh, former students, for example, or colleagues that are in departments of medicine, uh, as well as uh, physicians and uh, lay people so that we have a full gamut of people that uh, come on the podcast and uh, bring their interests and their knowledge bases to this. I think it's going to be a really fascinating long run in podcasting. So this is me saying goodbye from the inland Pacific Northwest, from Authentic Biochemistry. This is Dr. Daniel J. Guerra saying bye for now.